We may be a very Christian country in terms of our upbringing and our profession, but the world around us is becoming increasingly secular. The country of my birth, Canada, is, that would be a true statement, Canada has become increasingly secular in the last decade or so. The same is holding true in the United States of America. And we are, have, we are seeing now a generation of people who have not heard the basic story of who Jesus Christ is and what constitutes the Christian faith. So I want to ask you this morning, how would you describe Christianity to someone who's not familiar with its message? How would you describe the central message? What would you say is the central theme, the main thing in the Christian faith? What would you say is at the very heart of our doctrinal beliefs? Many observe the church engaging in good deeds and acts of mercy, so there might be an inclination to say that Christianity is about being kind and generous to others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some would want to summarize Christianity by what we do. Certainly, it is true that we should engage in such things, and this church does engage in such things, but it wouldn't be accurate to say that doing good deeds is at the heart of what the Christian faith is about. When we reduce Christianity to a prescription for behavior, we've missed the primary message in the Scripture. If being a Christian is equated with our attempts to be a good person, we've bypassed the primary message of the New Testament. What we learn from the Apostle Paul, among others, is that our performance is not central to what it means to be a Christian. And frankly, this is what sets Christianity apart from just about every other major religion on earth. Because if you're Muslim, if you're Buddhist, if you're Hindu, there is a ladder for you to climb. There is a mark for you to hit or a target for you to hit. Christianity stands alone in saying you can't do it. You'll never get to the top of that ladder by your own strength. You'll never hit the target. You'll never hit the mark. You'll never be good enough. Now in secular society, that's not a very popular message. Particularly in our day, no one wants to hear, you can't do it. No one wants to hear, you're not good enough. We've been told in our day that our potential is limitless. And that if we try hard enough, if we work hard enough, nothing is beyond our reach. To the extent that you've believed that message, you will also have this nagging feeling within yourself. That you're not good enough. That you don't quite measure up. But this is what is so unique about Christianity. 
The Bible does not require us to measure up. But we're told to trust in the one who's measured up on our behalf. Because we can't do it, someone has done it for us. And this notion that someone has stood in our place, that someone has represented us, that someone has served as our substitute, this is what we have come to regard as the Christian gospel. And the Christian gospel is at the very center, it is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Accordingly, Christianity is not fundamentally about what I do. Christianity is fundamentally about what Christ has already done. The gospel is central to the Christian faith. And we need to make sure we get the gospel right. As I've said before, this is anecdotal. And and I don't pretend to know Bahamian churches as well as I might like to. But I hear different gospels coming out of different churches. And yet the scripture tells us there is but one gospel. So we must run everything we hear through the filter of God's word. And we need to make certain that we get the most important message, the gospel, right. And that's why we begin a message series in Galatians in Ephesians. We'll see next Sunday how the churches in Galatia misunderstood and misapplied the gospel of Christ. And we get to see how serious their error is by looking at the manner and the tone with which Paul corrects them. We get to Galatians. Paul's furious. He's angry. He's beside himself because of this major doctrinal error. And the sense we get from Paul and Galatians is if you don't get the gospel right, you'll never live rightly. If you don't get the gospel right, you'll never live rightly. If you don't understand the nature of what Christ has done, you won't properly represent him in this world. Well, as we attempt to get the gospel right this morning to the best of Well, it's not even our ability. It's as the Spirit helps us. As we attempt to get the gospel right, let me say that Ephesians 2 does not tell us everything there is to know about the gospel. Ephesians 2 is not an exhaustive summary of the message, but it is a part of a much larger tapestry. It might be the best section, or it might be the most helpful section, but it doesn't tell us everything. I could have taken you to John 3 this morning. I could have taken you to Romans 3, which you heard read earlier this morning. Those texts would have served us almost as well, perhaps equally as well. But I think you will find the essential pieces of the Christian gospel in the first ten verses of Ephesians 2. What we find is that the gospel both diagnoses the problem... And it also provides a remedy. The gospel both diagnoses the problem and also provides the remedy. Now, I think everyone in this room has seen a physician at some point in their life. uh, But hopefully none of us have had the experience. And I can imagine this being an extremely frustrating experience to go to a physician and have them say to you, there's nothing I can do for you. 
what you have, this, this condition you have, this disease you have, it's too serious, it's too far gone, there's nothing I can do to treat you or to make this better. You cannot be cured from this illness. That would be a frustrating experience. But the gospel does not do this when it diagnoses our problem. The gospel tells us some very difficult things. Some things we might not want to hear. Some things we don't want to admit to. But then the gospel also provides a way to make us better. The gospel diagnoses the problem, but it gives us the remedy to make us whole again. And again, this is what's unique about Christianity is that the way to be made whole again is not a do-it-yourself project. So it's not the case that you can go home today and say, I'm going to make myself a super-duper Christian and I'm going to follow this 10-step formula. Being who we ought to be is not a do-it-yourself project. The Gospel is not an instruction manual telling us how to make ourselves better. This is important. The gospel is a declaration of what's already been done on our behalf. But if you're following the text, you'll see the gospel begins with very bad news. This is the worst kind of news. Paul's just telling it as it is. He says, you were dead. In your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard some gospel presentations describe coming to God, coming to Christ in this manner. They would say, Picture a person drowning. You're struggling to stay afloat. And someone sees you, and so they, they throw you a life preserver, and you grab on, and you're pulled safely to shore. And some will say, this is Jesus throwing you a lifeline. And all you need to do is swim towards the lifeline, grab on, and he'll pull you in. Have you heard a gospel presentation that sounds something like that? I have many times. But that's not what we see pictured here in the scripture. Paul's description does not fit that presentation. Paul says we're spiritually dead. There's no drowning. There's no struggling. He says we're dead. As if to convey that we're utterly incapable of reaching for anything. Dead people don't reach for things. As a dead person... What is necessary is for us to be brought back to life. Now you're waiting for the good news, but if you're following in the text, you see the news gets worse before it gets better. So Paul begins, uh, good morning, I'm, I'm glad to uh, write to you uh, uh, churches in Ephesus, and I'm pleased to declare some things to you. You need to know you're dead in your sins, you're dead in your trespasses, and just when they're looking at him with all kinds of trepidation and fear, he says, oh, and one more thing. One more thing, verse 3. You were by nature children of wrath. You are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
because of the disobedience of our first representatives. So the gospel talks about Jesus representing us. Well, the first part of scripture talks about Adam and Eve representing us. And because of their disobedience, the natural inclination of every human being has been to walk away from God. The natural inclination of every human being is to go their own way. We're told here in the text that our spiritual condition, which is a a dreadful one, we're dead in our sins, we're children of wrath, that's not unique to the children of Ephesus. It's not unique to anyone, it's universal. We're all born into this awful predicament whereby we are at odds with our Maker, at odds with the One who created us. Sin has positioned every human being who's ever been born, save Christ. Every human being has been an object of God's wrath by virtue of our sin. By virtue of our sin, there has been a gap between a holy God and the rest of mankind. I once heard an analogy much like the one I want to tell you, and it's, it's not the best, but it, it, it can give you an image of what we're talking about. God is holy and pure, and we are not. And so a holy God cannot be in fellowship with a sinful humanity. And I once heard an analogy, and I can phrase it in my own context. Uh, the McPhails have a dog who lives in our backyard, and the dog's name is Pop. And Pop is a pot cake, a very young pot cake. And what Pop does to stay cool during the day, and maybe your dog does this too, Pop, to stay cool, lies in the dirt. He digs and he digs and he digs a little hole in the dirt. In fact, if you go to my house, there's no backyard garden because all those gardens have been pulled up and made into little beds for Pop. And Pop is always filthy, it seems. This always happens. Welcome back, Ren. There we go. We'll let him pass by. I see him. There we go. So Pop is almost always dirty. So I need to tell you, not once on a Sunday morning have I ever greeted my dog, Pop. And I love Pop. I love Pop so much. Uh, She is a precious dog to me and to our family. But never will I go greet her on a Sunday morning. And the reason is I'm dressed like this. The suits are expensive. I, I try to keep this suit in good condition. I try to keep the shirt clean. But Pop is filthy. So when I am clean, even though I love my dog, even though I want to hug my dog and embrace my dog, I can't because I'm clean and Pop isn't. And, and so this is how we begin to think about a God who loves us, a God who longs for us, is at odds with us because we're not clean. He wants to be in fellowship. He wants to embrace us. But we've, we've got a problem, a sin problem. It's the worst kind of news until we go to verse 4. But God. But God. This is the profound counterpoint to our spiritual predicament. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
Friends, the holiness of God would be a terrifying thing if it were not matched by the mercy and love of God. The diagnosis of our spiritual condition would be utterly demoralizing. If I sent you away after verse 3, you would say, I wish you'd go back to Canada. That was awful news he shared with us this morning. That was the worst kind of news. How negative. But after hearing this terrible diagnosis, we're told about a powerful and effective remedy. What does a dead person require? A lifeline thrown into the water won't help. It's too late for that. A dead person requires the very thing that God provides. God has the ability to make us alive. This is the key, one of the key starting points of the gospel. That God must make dead people come alive again. And this is precisely what he does for those whom he redeems. Some of you are thinking about scriptures where you're exhorted to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You're thinking upon those texts where you're being told to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But what I'm hearing in Ephesians 2 is you won't do any of those things if you're dead. You won't believe in Christ if you're dead. You won't trust Him. You won't put your faith in Him if you're dead in sin. You won't repent of anything if you're dead. The first part of the gospel is God needs to make you alive. And when He makes you alive, you have eyes to see a Savior who has come to you and wants to redeem you. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this. Speaking for the Lord, Ezekiel gives this promise. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It was just two weeks ago, I was on holidays. And I dropped my 13-year-old daughter. hardly believe she's 13 now. I dropped my 13-year-old daughter, Anya, off at camp in Rosso, Ontario. It's a camp called Muskoka Woods. And this is the very same camp that I attended when I was her age. So in the 1980s, I spent weeks every summer at Muskoka Woods. And we dropped Anya off there. And I need to tell you, it was a little bit of a strange experience dropping Anya off at that particular camp. You see, there are people who still work at that camp who were there 30 years ago when I was a camper. There are people on staff at that camp who remember me as a 13-year-old boy. They knew me before I was a Christian. They knew me before I had a new heart. They knew me before I had the new spirit spoken of by Ezekiel. So it's a strange thing for me to return to this place and have those people interact with me. And it's strange because I'm not that person anymore. Uh, Not simply an age thing, 13 to 43. Well, I'm not yet 43, almost there. It's not just an age thing. 
It's God has fundamentally changed me. Since then, He's made me alive. He's given me a new heart. He's given me a new spirit. And what the gospel makes clear is that I didn't give myself a new heart. I'm not responsible for the new spirit that's within me. I did not save myself. I did not successfully reform my behavior. Who I am today is not the result of good education or careful discipline. Who I am today is a result of the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And this is perhaps the fundamental part of the gospel that we all need to get right. That we didn't contribute to our salvation. I once heard a theologian say, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is your sin. In that sense, I would agree. The best summary, gospel summary I can think of is right here, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. If someone says, summarize the gospel in a sentence or two, this is what I would give them. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, we're told elsewhere that we must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we must place our faith upon Him in order to be saved. But then we're told here that the very thing that's required for our salvation, faith, is actually a gift. We don't self-generate this this faith. It's given to us. It's the gift of God. In other words, no person in history has ever earned their salvation. Paul specifies it's not the result of works. It's not the result of your niceness or your kindness or your generosity. It's not the result of any good thing you've ever done so that no one can boast. Some of you are thinking, well, why in the world do I work so hard to be nice? What's my motivation to be generous? Why should I be engaged in good deeds? Why are we to be so passionate about helping others and providing for those in need? Paul actually gives the answer right here in this gospel text. In the very next verse, verse 10, Paul says, We are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we say that and we profess that an important part of the Christian gospel is that we have been saved for something. And this is where some gospel presentations fall down. Some gospel presentations that I've heard unduly emphasize, to the exclusion of other things, what we're saved from. We don't want to be objects of wrath. We don't want to be condemned by God. We don't want to spend an eternity in hell. And so the emphasis is often on what we're saved from. And that's compelling. But a balanced view of the gospel also talks about what we're saved for. We're not simply saved from wrath, but we're saved for good works. 
And the order is critical. The churches in Galatia were requiring that certain works be done in order to gain salvation. That if they were suggesting, they were putting it out there, that if you did not follow certain parts of the Jewish law, you could not be redeemed by Christ. But if there is something that we could contribute to our salvation, then we would have something to boast about. If there is something that I can do that results in me being saved, there is a sense in which I deserve credit for my salvation. Some of you might be sitting here this morning thinking, Brian, I think you're splitting theological hairs here. You know, whether good deeds play a part before salvation or after, is this not splitting theological hairs? No, it isn't. And the proof that it isn't is Paul wrote an entire epistle on this point. It was so important where works and good deeds were placed in the life of the Christian that he wrote an entire letter correcting an entire community. Why was Paul so fixated on this? Because something massive was at stake. Here it is. The difference between works as a condition of salvation and works as a result of salvation determines who gets the glory. Good deeds, are they a condition for salvation? Or are they simply the overflow? The consequence, the result of salvation already bestowed. Whichever side you pick determines who gets the glory. If salvation is something I achieve by my works, by my good living, by my nice ways, then I get at least some of the glory. Because I was kind enough, smart enough, humble enough. If I am doing things that contribute, then I get some of the glory. But if I contribute nothing to my salvation, if it's entirely a result of grace, then God gets all the glory. I love the way our hymn writer puts it. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. By doing all the work, God gets all the glory. Friends, this should come as particular good news to some of you. It's good news hopefully for all of us on some level. But I imagine there are some among us this morning. You're very hard on yourself. You're very critical of yourself. You see your shortcomings. You see the ways you fall down. You see the ways in which you struggle to conform to the will of God. And you worry. Am I good enough for God? And the scripture replies, It's not up to you to be good enough. Christ was good enough for you. So whatever your weakness, whatever your frailty, whatever your vulnerability, whatever your shortcomings, those are covered by Christ. You're not saved because you are good enough. 
You're saved because he was good enough. We've said a lot. What is the gospel? Our opening question. The Christian gospel is the good news that Christ's life, death, and resurrection has achieved salvation for those who have come to believe in him. And those of us who have experienced the saving power of Christ now need to remember we were saved for something. If we have been redeemed, if God made us alive, and in making us alive, He gave us the gift of faith. And when we put our faith in Him, we were justified. And now in this justified state, we come to this text and it says we are saved for good works. The good works aren't so we feel better about ourselves. Although they will make us feel better about ourselves. That's not God's design. The good works aren't so that someone will recognize us and pat us on the back or even give us a job and pay us a salary as a pastor. No, our good works are motivated by the reality that God is our Father, that Christ is our Savior, and that the Spirit of Christ lives within all those who are redeemed. We do good deeds. We try to make a difference in the community. We're generous with our resources. We do all these things for one reason. That God gets the glory. So as you go out from this place, do good deeds not to earn God's favor. You can't do that. Do good deeds to bring God the glory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.